Mark. Let's do a little bit of review. Mark chapter 1 verse 9. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved with you. I am well pleased. And that's where we were. That's where we were. And the spirit immediately. The spirit immediately drove him, Jesus, out into the wilderness he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And that's the temptation of Jesus in Mark. That's it. Real short. However, Matthew and Luke seem to have access to a heck of a lot more of information. So I want you to turn... To the two sheets that I passed out, beginning with the one that has 20, the temptation on it. You'll notice the center column has Mark, chapter 1, verses 12, 13. And then you see this, the, the, the passage that we read ending with, and he was with the wild beasts. And then there's a great big gap. And if you turn the next page, the gap continues all the way down to the very bottom where it says, and the angels ministered to him. All right? So this kind of illustrates this, the nature of the synoptics. Mark, the middle column, gives the brief Markan account of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Then Matthew and Luke come along and give a much larger, longer, more complete, more elaborate version of it. Mark tells us it happened. Matthew and Luke tells us what happened. Okay? That's the essential difference. Mark tells us that it happened, but doesn't tell us about it. Just says it happened. He simply says that he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. But the content of the temptations, he does not relate. Matthew and Luke, however, relate the content of the temptations. So let's look at Matthew. I, I want you to, tonight, we'll look at the sheets handed out, at least for this part. We'll also go back to the our printed Bibles, possibly. But take a look at the page that I printed out. You'll see Matthew 4, 1 through 11 in the left-hand column. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. Well, that's one of the biggest understatements in the entire Bible. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, surprise, surprise. Hmm. So... Look at the differences between Mark in the middle and Matthew on the left. The Spirit immediately drove him out in the wilderness, and that's in Mark. Look at Matthew. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And notice there's an intention now given in Matthew that's not in Mark. To be tempted by the devil. And he was in the wilderness 
40 days tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts. That's in Mark. Whereas in Matthew, and he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he was hungry. First of all, what do you see different between these two thus far? I mean, there's tons of material to come in Matthew about the temptations themselves. But thus far, as of verse 1 and 2, what do you see that's different? There's a difference in the, the part of the Spirit. Yes. What does the Spirit do in Matthew that he doesn't do in Mark? Well, Matthew, it leads him in, uh, into the wilderness. It led, him, it led him into the wilderness. Mm -hmm. To be tempted. In Mark, the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Drove him. There's a difference there. One is led, the other is drive. And it's not an inconsequential difference. One has a greater force to it, the one is less forceful. But the one that is less forceful also gives us an intention here. The Holy Spirit's intention is that he be tempted by the devil. Now, what's another difference between this Mark and this Matthew reading? It doesn't really say he was fasted. Um, yeah, he didn't. You know, he well, fasted in Matthew. No, he fasted the in Matthew. Right there. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by the devil, and he was with the wild beast. No fasting mentioned. There's no mention of the fasting in Mark. He's in the wilderness for 40 days. Matthew tells us that it was in the wilderness that he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. So the fasting is found in Matthew, not in Mark. I find it very interesting and fascinating that they have to, that Mark has to, as short as he's being, mention the wild beast and no fasting. Put those two together. Yeah. The wild beasts are mentioned, and he was with the wild beasts, whereas in Matthew, it's, that's, not, that's not stated. Well, he also not, says 40 days and not 40 nights. Yeah. Matthew adds the 40 nights. What else is different? There is another difference. It may not be obvious, but it's a difference. There's a difference in tense, isn't there? Well, Mark says immediately drove him. And Matthew doesn't give a specific temporal indication. Mm -hmm. And Matthew says he was hungry afterwards. Mark didn't address that. No, because there, Mark doesn't have fast. a fasting. fasting. Yeah. Who is it that does this? In, who is it that does the tempting in Mark's? Satan, Satan, the accuser is oh the meaning of that name. Or, or as in Matthew, it's just the devil, Hadiabolos. The devil is given the, it's his general title, if you will, or his general description, the devil. Whereas in Mark, it's Satan, the the title accuser, a more specific identification, which actually is extremely fascinating and runs contrary to the conception that many uh, scholars have tempted to articulate lately that Satan was a later development. 
of Christian thinking uh, that you wouldn't see as much a mention of, of Satan in Mark because Mark is an earlier gospel. Matthew, based upon Mark, is a later gospel. Therefore, it should be devil in Mark and Satan in Matthew. But it's reversed. Now, now Matthew mentions Satan later, but... But I just think that's fascinating. And Luke will do the same thing, but we're not going to go to Luke yet. I have a question. Yes. Um, due to how I was brought up, I always thought Satan and devil were the same thing. Sure. So what's the difference? What's the difference? It's essentially the term utilized for him. Uh, I would say that based upon how we nominally reference this being, it would be the same. It would be the difference between saying the pastor or Greg, the devil, Satan. So Satan has become a personal name for him. It's a title, the accuser, but its utilization is such that it has become his name. It's like Satan, the devil, like Greg, the minister. Yes. It's, it's become, in its usage, a personal name. In Jewish mysticism, the devil pre-existed his devilishness as Lucifer, which mean, his name means furious light or furiously beautiful light. Not angry, but brilliant, overwhelmingly beautiful, brilliant, furiously beautiful beautiful light. And that's what Lucifer means in Latin. And it is a direct transliteration of the Hebrew term for, him, for his name. And it's a personal name, but it also is a descriptive name. Names are often descriptive in the biblical period and even later. And the same is true here. The accuser is a title that he bears almost as a name now. Satan. Satan is name. The devil is a more general term for what Satan does. It's like a generic noun. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a. It is. A, it is. A, as I said, it's like Pastor Greg, Devil Satan. <laughs> Some people would agree with that, but that's beside the point. That's beside the point. All right. Now notice in verse three in Matthew, and the temp. That's what the devil does. The devil is the tempter. Well, that's also what Satan does. He is the accuser. It's a slightly different but related concept. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him. Now, this is the material now that we're out of Mark. We're, we're no longer in Mark. We, we're in the material that goes beyond Mark, which we find in Matthew and in Luke, but not in Mark. Hence, What's the source for this? Q. Q. This is the sayings source material that we know from Matthew and Luke and which is not, for the most part, in Mark. Interesting. It's, and we will see this repeatedly, it's, it, it springboards off something that Mark tells us and expands upon something that Mark tells us, but it could stand alone. And many scholars say that actually the temptation story existed in its entirety in Q. 
And Matthew and Luke are pretty much tossing out pretty much all of Mark's version of it in favor of the saying source material. So let's keep going in Matthew. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is the first temptation. The first temptation goes from verse 3 straight down here through verse, the end of verse 4. That's the first temptation. What is the first temptation? The first temptation is to change stones into bread. Not go hungry as well. Not go hungry. Remember, he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He is famished. He is hungry. He is starving. Of course he is. Here he is in the wilderness. He hasn't had anything to eat. He has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. What is the first thing you're going to have in your mind after that? Food. I want a Big Mac and a large order of fries and a large Coke. Well. Two Big Macs. Well, well there's, there's, there's no McDonald's around. But there are rocks sitting all around there in the wilderness. And in the Judean wilderness, there would be plenty of rocks sitting around for him to look at. And the Satan, the devil, the accuser, the tempter here says, see those rocks over there? If you really are the son of God, if you really have all of these powers, if you really are what God has said of you back there at your baptism just a few days ago, if you really are the son of God, just turn a few of them into loaves of bread and eat and don't be hungry. Essentially, the first temptation is to depend upon your own abilities, upon yourself. All right. Look at Jesus' response to it. It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. His response is to do what? Quote the Bible. Quote scripture. He quotes the Bible. He quotes the Hebrew Bible, the scriptures. He quotes the Bible and says, You do not live by bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God, he quotes the scriptures as his defense, saying it's the scriptures that I depend upon, not bread or more importantly, not myself. Now, we can't change rocks into bread, but Jesus could, apparently. Water to wine. Huh? Water to wine, rocks to bread. I mean, what's... what's the, <laughs> and, and But the point is... Jesus could have done it, but didn't do it. His response sets a pattern. Instead of depending upon himself, his own abilities, he's going to depend upon the word of God. So the first temptation is to depend upon yourself and not on the word of God. Jesus defeats it by actually asserting you depend upon the word of God, not yourself. The second temptation. The devil, then the devil, took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. So the second temptation is what? What is contained in the second temptation? What does Satan do? The devil do? The tempter do? To test. Uh, Jesus to test God. To prove his... Jesus to test God to prove that he really is the son of God. The first temptation was, if you really are the son of God... Change rocks into bread. Depend, you got the power. Depend upon yourself. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to depend upon the word of God. So Satan says, all righty then. Take him to the temple, to the pinnacle of the temple there in Jerusalem. And what does Satan do? What does he do here? What does he do specifically? Sounds like he's, where is that written? He's quoting something there. It is written. For it is written. Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge of you or over you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. He's quoting straight out of the Psalms. Straight out of the Psalms. Satan, the devil, the tempter, is quoting Scripture. So in other words, Jesus defeats the first temptation by saying, we don't depend upon ourselves, on our own abilities, but upon the Word of God. Satan says, all right, if you're going to depend upon the word of God, here's the word of God. We're on the top of the temple. Just throw yourself off the top of the temple and God will catch you. If you really are the son of God, God will catch you. God won't let you be hurt. The second temptation is to put God to the test in a sense. To make God answer to your expectation. It is to take scripture and twist it to your own interpretation, to your own understanding, and then say, okay, God, chop, chop, come to work, take care of me. I've read the scripture. This is my interpretation of it. Now prove yourself, God. Come on. Here, boy, here, boy. Treat God like a lap dog. Also, I've done what I'm supposed to do. Why? Yeah. Where's the... Where's the result? Where's the reward coming? Where's the reward coming? It says I'm going to give it. I mean, look, uh, I could throw myself off the pinnacle of the temple and it says the angels are going to catch me and let me down nice and safe, right? The Satan is twisting. The devil is twisting. The tempter is twisting that scripture. It says nothing about throwing yourself into harm's way. It talks about tripping over the stone and falling by accident, not by will. So the devil is twisting the scripture he's quoting. By the way, that's a little subtle indicator that whenever the devil starts quoting scripture to you, be extremely careful. <laughs> be very careful at what's being said. The scripture can be quoted and easily misquoted, twisted, perverted into our own desires, our own needs. 
And the temptation, the second temptation is to take the scripture and to twist it to our own needs, our own desires, our own circumstance and say, okay, God, here's my understanding. Now prove yourself like a servant, like a lapdog. Perform your tricks, God. You said you'll do it. And it's a twisting of what scripture says, not what scripture says. So the second temptation follows directly from the first. Naturally, in the flow of the story, it follows naturally from the first. The first one is to depend upon scripture. I mean, the first one is to depend upon yourself and you answer it by depending upon scripture. Okay, if you're going to depend upon scripture, depend upon this. But it's a twisting of scripture, not scripture itself. And that was Jesus' response to it. Again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You will not put the Lord your God to the test. You will not say, God, here, prove yourself based on my understanding of Scripture. Okay. The third temptation in Matthew. The third temptation. The devil, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, the third temptation is obvious. What is the third temptation? Betray God. I worship somebody other than God. Worship something worship other than God. Worship an idol. Break the first huh? Break the first commandment. What for? Worldly possessions. Worldly possessions. Power. Anything you, want. Anything you want. Actually, in this case, it's even more pernicious than that. It's to get God's will done. Look, all of these I will give to you. If you will fall down and worship me. Jesus was coming to be the Lord of the world. The Son of God comes into the world to establish the kingdom of God. The Son of God comes into the world so that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So to attain that, Satan's going to let him attain it. Satan's going to say, oh look, here we are, we're up on the mountain. I've shown you the, the world. I own them. They're mine to give to you. We find that out from Luke. And so, you know, I'm pulling from Luke right now. And so here, these are mine. I give them to you if only you will worship me. It would be to attain God's will to have power and control over the whole world. But the wrong way. By worshiping Satan. By breaking the first commandment. By worshiping something other than God. Anything other than God. Well, he was trying to sell him what he already had. In, in, in a sense. In a twisted way. In a very twisted way. But it, it, you might think of it this way. Let's just skip over the next couple of three years of preaching and teaching and miracle working and the suffering that you had to go through and the crucifixion you had to go through and the death you'll have to go through. Let's just skip all of that, Jesus. And we'll just skip to the glory. You can have it all now. And who's going to know? Just worship me. 
No one needs to know. We're off here in the mountains. No one's going to see this. Just you and me. And it's all yours. The third temptation is to go the easy way. Go the least, the way of least resistance. It is to uh, try to obtain a good end by a not good means. The ends do not justify the means. Is this sounding a whole lot like Paul again? <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be a Paul interpretation, but in uh-huh. point of fact, if this is God's will that God that Jesus be the Lord of the earth, and it is. Why go through all of this mess to get to it? Let's just do it this way. Who's going to know? It's just between you and me, Jesus. That sounds like a good deal if Satan was involved. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem, isn't it? But it is to obtain obtain the good end the wrong way. It is to obtain God's will through a way that God hasn't established. It is to go the route of least resistance. And Jesus' response is point blank yet again to quote from Scripture. Be gone, Satan. There he names him. Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So that's the third temptation. Now skip down, skip past all that little text. You don't need to look at the little text. And look at the very end. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. Aha. There's the end of it that we had at the end of Mark. And behold, angels came and ministered to him. That's Matthew's version of the temptations. Mark, there are three Mark temptations. is, sound, you know, yes. it sounds like, you know, it sounds like uh, before you read that, if you only read Mark, you'd think that the angels were with Jesus most of the time. Oh. Didn't have to go through all this, wouldn't you? Um, he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. And that's that's a present tense. I mean, that's talking about our continuation. Actually, here. my mental image of that is Jesus sitting at a banquet table and yeah. angels coming around to serve. Yeah, so meals, I mean, no wonder he didn't get hungry. <laughs> but because remember, there is no fasting in Mark. Exactly. So that language from Mark kind of is a little misleading. Yeah. Um, ministering is probably a better translation there than, than waited. But it's yeah. the same basic idea. It's the same basic idea. But the, the difference is intense, and that concerns me. That Mark is taking the easy way. It looks like, but what you just parallel is, he's taking the easy The analog is he's taking the easy way out telling the story. He's not telling about all these temptations. These angels are there ministering to you, I-N-G, not E-D. Yeah, it's not past tense ministered. It's ministering to. Well, is it? it? And the angels ministered to him, past tense. Yeah, but that's, is that in Mark? That's in Mark. And the angels ministered to him. Yeah, but And the, the angels waited on him. That's not saying they waited on him. In that sense, after 40 days, it's like, hey, Greg came to the table tonight. And, uh, you know, it's saying at the very end. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, semicolon. And he was with the wild beasts, semicolon. And the angels waited on him. It doesn't say when they started waiting. Exactly. You see, now you're picking up on one of the characteristics of Mark. 
his utilization of short, incomplete sentences, which is what he, now it's been corrected in English, but in the Greek it's very clearly incomplete sentences. They're, they are phrases that are just run together. It's choppy. It actually reflects spoken characteristics. Yet again, Mark betraying his origins, the source of his gospel in the preachings of Peter. Yet again, we're hearing the oral layer behind Mark, getting through in the brevity of the use of the language. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan. He was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. But no detail as to when the beasts were there, when the angels were there. It's just stated. He's depending on that oral tradition, as you said. We don't know what the oral is. We weren't there. We don't have. No, we don't. We can only we can only read reverse. what Mark gives us. Exactly. Is it possible that it was sort of a rough draft? <laughs> Who said that before, Linda? Yeah. Well, Mark. Well, I, mean, I, don't, I know that sounds facetious, but I don't read it that way. I'm, you know, if it, if somebody he, he wrote down his thoughts quickly as he was thinking about them to include them in, in a more developed writing. It, it, Mark repeatedly will strike us as being in a hurry. He's in a hurry to tell this story. He is writing it down quickly, in a sense. It's coming across very abbreviated, because, but we only know that from having read Matthew thus far. We're only noticing that it's abbreviated because we're comparing it to something that has a longer version of the story. The baptism, though, that he's got yeah. is about a paragraph or so. It's yeah. not that short. No, it's, well, but it, the baptism of Jesus occurs from verse 9 through verse 11. That's the baptism. The John the Baptist stuff is, uh, you know, essentially six verses yeah. prior to that. Yeah. It's brief, 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 brief. And you're going to see this all the way through the gospel, especially when you compare it with Matthew and Luke. Mark is brief. So that's why and you mentioned the incomplete sentences. So that that's what makes me think that maybe he just wrote that down in a hurry. And it was going to use it. The whole gospel is this way. Well, that's what I mean. Maybe maybe Peter spoke that way. And he used it later to write it It actually has the characteristics of oral speech. Almost uh, unplanned conversational preaching on the part of somebody who's telling this story to people, many of whom have already heard it and know the content of the temptations, possibly from somewhere else. Why I go into the detail if your intention here is to write down the the the, the sketch out the the high points of the ministry of Jesus. That's your objective in Mark's case, because that was what Peter did in much of his preaching. But it came out sort of like an outline. And it comes out in some ways like an outline. That's a really good way to put it. There are elements of Mark that strike us today as being almost in an outline structure. All right? That's fascinating. But it's it's, it's accurate. When I was, this is a rabbit trail, but... 
um, aside, whatever. When I was taking my catechism class in the Presbyterian Church, one of our assignments was to outline one of the Gospels. Mm -hmm. And so, um, being the swagger that I was, I picked the shortest one. But I am here to tell you that it was extremely difficult to yeah, outline everything. Mark because every sentence was a different thing. Subject. You ended up making your outline nearly as long as that's what the gospel. The, that's what the preacher right. said after he, after he read it. He said, you know, it's like you wrote the whole thing here, Karen. <laughs> and I'm going, well, you know, it was all important. <laughs> I'm gonna, I, I was thinking, what, what we've been talking about was tempting me to address something that I've been prepared to talk about for three weeks. But I think I'm going to hold it in abeyance still again until more people are here. And it's essentially the thematic organization of, of Mark's gospel and how it reflects an artificial construction. But also how it reflects a preaching style. Yes. Actually, when, from you talking, what it reminds me of when you were saying it sounds like uh, someone speaking orally, it makes me think of somebody that's like speaking before city council who's tired. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Someone who has. You've got to make your points, your main points fast. Very well put. Yeah. There, the brevity of Mark has multiple reasons. One of the most important one of those reasons is to get it down and get it down fast. And if you think about the reason why Mark wrote, assuming Bishop Papias was correct, and he's writing down the teachings of Peter pretty quickly after Peter was executed, it may very well have been that Mark was a little bit worried about being alive himself to finish the job, considering Peter died during the persecution. It might be Mark who's next. And he has, he's listened to Peter preach. He knows the story. He can sit down and write it all out. And apparently that's what he did. And let somebody else flesh it out. Possibly. Let somebody else who has more time and is in a better, safe, safer place, possibly, fill in more date details. Or what if it's, it's more like what Bonnie was saying. It's, uh, these people, this oral tradition, they know it. They already know it. it Don't, you it know, may well like be, this. Get, get to the point. Get to it the may point. well be. He's writing this. For the church in Rome, these people know this story. They heard Peter preach it. They heard other gospel uh, proclaimers preach this message. They probably know the content. I'm convinced they knew the content of much of what we have in the saying source. I don't know if Mark had a copy of it in front of him, but that wasn't his objective. His objective was to write down the preachings of Peter about the life of Jesus not write down the teachings of Jesus. And there's an important difference. Now, Mark has some of the teachings of Jesus in it. Obviously, some of those teachings were important to Peter, and he preached those too. But for the most part, Mark's purpose is to give the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and not so much the details of what that ministry contained. Just as he tells us that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, but he doesn't tell us what the temptations contained, just that it happened. Mark comes across as trying to be a chronology of the life of Jesus. Now, was that actually the intent that Mark had? His gospel is written that way, but, but analyses done of that gospel show that it's an artificial construction. 
it does follow a general outline of the chronology that probably happened. You know, baptism, the beginning of his ministry, he did this, he did that. He gets arrested, he gets tried, he gets convicted, he gets executed, he gets buried, he gets raised. Those basic high points occur in in the general order in which you got them in. But the actual details of many of the events that are articulated appear to be articulated in an artificial structure that we'll talk about hopefully next time. Because I want to at least take a look at Luke tonight before we finish. Other questions about Matthew's rendition of the story? Get some coffee. I need some holy water. Oh, thank you. Any questions about anything? I have a comment. Yes, ma'am. I keep thinking that that I don't know. It seems, looking at it from a perfectly human point of view, I'm just wondering why Jesus didn't tell Satan he'd gone a whole lot sooner. (laughs) You should have done that after the first temptation. I know. Interesting question because... In Matthew, there almost seems to be a development of Jesus' understanding that this is Satan. It starts as the devil and the tempter. And then finally, when there is the, 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 the temptation is to worship Satan, then he says, Satan, be gone. Does he violate a commandment before that? Who? The tempter. The tempter? He's just quoting scripture. He got scripture quoted to him, and he's quoting scripture. So I'm not. I don't see anything that would indicate any 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 overt then. opposition to the deity. This might be some trickster demon or some trickster being, but maybe not necessarily obs- uh, outlandishly identified as Satan. It's not until you get to the end that it's obviously Satan. Worship me. Remember Satan, according to uh, to many resources, Satan's fall was occasioned by his desire to be God. So that would kind of... If you could get the Son of God to worship him, <laughs> that would do it. So it falls into place there. Was the devil a large part of the Jewish thought process? By the time of Jesus, conceptions of Satan and of the devil had reached a point of some pretty strong, elaborate development. The development began during the Babylonian captivity. Prior to the Babylonian captivity, their conception and understanding of a personal devil, i.e. A, uh, like a fallen angel, was pretty skimpy. It only developed when they were in Babylonian captivity and then they came back from that. They came back with this conception of a semi-god type fallen angel whose objective was to try to be worshipped as God and to make humans worship it as God. Doesn't that sound like they, either Babylonians or Romans or somebody, they adopted some of their mythology? They adopted some of the Babylonian dualism where you got two gods, the good god and the bad god. And the bad God tries to overcome the good God by making the human beings worship him. And the good God uh, provides the proper inducements for humans to worship. And so you get this dualistic conception. 
And that dualism is supplemented by the Hebraic understanding of monotheism. So instead of Satan being an equal god, he becomes a fallen angel, certainly more powerful than humans. Michael and Gabriel are really powerful beings, but they're not gods. They are angels, and they had angelology a very long time in Hebrew's understanding. So the idea came, well, we can't have a co-equal deity, but what we have is a fallen angel, a rebel servant. And that's how they then came to understand personalized evil. They picked up on something that, that they were struggling with and had been struggling with for a long time in Jewish understanding, which was the fact that evil often is highly personalized. Uh, it's not a force. It's personal. It works itself out in people personally. It impacts people personally. We understand it often personally. A storm is an evil, but a mad dictator is. An earthquake isn't evil, even when it does terrible things. But a dictator or uh, the mass murderer of thousands or millions is evil. This is sounding a lot like screw tape. Now, of course it's a lot like screw tape. Where do you think screw tape gets it from? <laughs> Boy, C.S. Lewis, all I get was talk about plagiarizing. Well, <laughs> that was his objective. Was yeah, he, he succeeded. Okay, let's go to Luke. So turn back to Luke. It's in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, in the parallel, over on the right side of the page. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. Oh, look. It's, he's restructured it again. He's structured it differently from Matthew. He's cleaned up all of Mark's problems. In fact, he's pretty much tossed Mark completely out the window in favor of the saying source material that Matthew is using, but he's cleaned it up even more from Matthew, which is a characteristic of Luke. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, not just led by the Holy Spirit, but full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit for 40 days in the wilderness, tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing in those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, that right there, that little, that little phrase right there is the indicator that what we're dealing, and there's plenty of them, but this is an excellent indicator, that what we're dealing with is not oral, it is written. It's written down, so he's, he's readjusting the phrasing some, but it's, he's copying something that was written and cleaning it up as he goes. So, in Luke, again, he's fasting. And he's fasting for 40 days. Notice there's no 40 nights. Matthew comes from a Jewish Christian community in which the concept of 40 days and 40 nights is a refrain from the Bible. Think about the flood. Mark is, I mean, Luke is not writing in that kind of Jewish Christian ethos. He's writing to Gentiles for whom it's 40 days is 40 days. 40 days and 40 nights, huh? That's kind of weird. He's not using the Jewish turn of phrase here. He's using a Gentile one, simply saying 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Notice the difference from Matthew. In Matthew, it's plural. 
If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Whereas in Luke it's, command this stone to become bread. He's, he's cleaned it a little bit. It's almost as if Satan reaches down, the devil reaches down and picks up a rock. Here you go. Here you go. And it's actually echoing John the Baptist's statement earlier on where he talked about God being able to raise up from these stones children of Abraham. Don't be bragging about being children of Abraham, you, you, you Pharisees and, and Sadducees. You're coming here for baptism. What are you talking about? Don't claim that you have Abraham as your ancestor. God can raise children from these stones to be children of Abraham. Well, here, Hasatan, the devil, picks up one of those stones, essentially, and says, eh, here, eat some bread, make some bread. Do, do your thing, Jesus. If you really are the Son of God, do your thing, make it into a loaf of bread and have something to eat. If you really are the Son of God. First temptation is the same temptation. It's the same temptation. Jesus' response is the same. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Period. End of quote. Oops. Jesus is not depicted as quoting as much in Luke as he is in Matthew. Again, in Matthew, the desire he's, is to, to, to draw from the Jewish material, the Jewish Hebrew Bible, the, 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 the scriptures of the people. He's writing to Jewish Christians and to Jews that they're trying to convert into Christians. So he's going to quote, have Jesus quote a heck of a lot more scripture here. Luke dealing with Gentiles, writing to Gentiles in the Gentile church and trying to convert Gentiles. His objective is not governed by a desire to have him quoting a whole lot of Hebrew Bible, so he makes it brief. He makes it briefer, cleaner as well. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Very simple statement. A very simple statement. Now you notice that there's a lot of little tiny print here. That tiny print reflects Matthew's location of the second temptation. Matthew and Luke swap second and third temptations. Luke makes Matthew's third temptation his second temptation and makes Matthew's second temptation his third. That's fascinating. There's a reason for that, but we'll come to that in a bit. Let's take it in the order Luke has it. So skip on down to verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. That's a little different. In a moment of time. That's what's been added to the Matthew phrasing here. In a moment of time. I.e., it didn't take long. This is a spiritual event. This is not a literal thing. Showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So in Matthew, he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and 
Him only shall you serve. The begone Satan is missing. Why? So that he can give him the third temptation. So he can give him the third temptation. He can give him the third temptation. Interesting. Interesting. Thus far, do you have any faint thoughts before we hit the third temptation in Luke as to why Luke inverts the order of the second and third temptations? And I'll give you a little hint. About 90% of the scholarship says that the Matthian order is the correct order. That the story itself contains enough internal components to it to indicate that the original order is the Matthian order, that the Lucan order requires too much readjustment. Therefore, it doesn't reflect the original order. Luke is intentionally adjusting the sequence. Why? Well, I'm thinking usually when people write, they uh, start with the like most minor point and build, build up. It. That's true. You know, which Matthew seems to have done. Right. So I, I, that's why another reason why the, the Matthian order is considered yeah. to be the, the proper order. But then on the human side, on the scary side, this would be the scariest one because if he throws himself off the temple, <laughs> he's gone. If, you know, if I win, I win, you lose type situation. From the devil. Pretty dramatic. Let's read the third one and then we'll, we'll address the question. And he took him to Jerusalem. And set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will give his angels charge of you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Uh, Satan's citation is as complete as it is in Matthew. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? And you can see the citation in Matthew. Just look over to the left side there in the tiny print. There's the parallel in Matthew. They pulled it from just earlier. That's why it's doubled there. So that you can follow it in parallel. And Jesus answered him, and it is said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. No, Satan, be gone. That's missing. It's just that after this one, he leaves. Well, that very, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the very last sentence is certainly setting up a future. Sure. It sets up a future encounter. It does set up a future encounter. Absolutely. It sets up a future encounter. It also indicates, it hints at, there was more to the temptations than what we get to see. Yeah. Notice it says, and when the devil had ended every mm -hmm. temptation. Luke is usually rather precise about temporal things. So, it, you know, if it was, and with that, he left him. No, it doesn't say that. It says, when he had ended every temptation, which implies there were other temptations than just these three. One following this one, possibly. It's just that he's not detailing it. But wait, there's more. Possibly. Yeah. Why do you think Luke switched the order from the more reasonable, more logical, easier to follow sequence of change rocks into bread, 
twist, I mean, you know, depend upon yourself, twist the word of God, or uh, fall down and worship me to this weirder sequence of depend upon yourself, <laughs> worship me, twist the word of God by throwing yourself off the pinnacle of the temple and expect God to do what you want. Why do you think the sequence is different? <laughs> a well, sequel later well, on. And then he departed from him until an, until an opportune time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Well, yes. That leaves it open for a sequel. There is going to be another encounter. But that was the idea. He could have that one paragraph there anyway and still, still left the order. He could have left the order. He could have just added that little phrasing in at the end where it says in, um, in Matthew, um, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and only him shall you serve. And, the, and behold, the angels came and ministered to him. It could have said, after uh, only him shall you serve. It could have said, and then the, then, the devil had, then, then the devil departed from him until an opportune time. It could have said that, but it, it doesn't in Luke, in Matthew. Unless, I mean, I don't know enough if Luke's writing to Gentiles, if That's the third part, for some reason, seemed more important. That's what I was thinking. There you go. Because this one here, you know, where you can get the good kingdoms of the world, okay. But this one here is actually more of a challenge. It is. In, in a sense, it is. You are given the opportunity. I mean, look, let's be honest. Worshiping Satan is a really the bad, the wrong thing to do. And everybody knows that. It's not as if this is a, oh, what a, what a concept. I never thought about that being bad. Well, no, it's obviously, it is the worst of the three in, in a theological sense, but it's also the most obviously wrong of the three. Okay? Whereas in Luke, this business here of taking and twisting this scripture and putting God to the test actually is the one that just about every single person in this world fails to every single time. We're used, we're used to depending upon ourselves. We know we're not supposed to worship Satan no matter what. But oh boy, is it easy to take this Bible and twist the scriptures and try to make it say what we want it to say and then say, okay, God, now pony up. Oh, I'm glad we don't do that we do it all the time, sister. <laughs> but in a sense, this one is the most pernicious. And then, of course, the concept of you know throwing yourself off that temple mount. You know, throw yourself off and prove it. Prove it. And of course, you're going to do this in the sight of everybody. There's another indicator too, and this is, reflects a pattern that exists in Luke, and it was repeated in Luke throughout the Gospel, and you find it also in the Acts of the Apostles, which Luke also wrote. And it's a continual returning to Jerusalem at the end of things in cycles. Coming back to Jerusalem, coming back to Jerusalem. So his nominal pattern of telling stories would bring him back to Jerusalem at the end of the story. And notice it's in Luke where the holy city is actually identified as Jerusalem. Interesting. Here he gives it its name, Jerusalem. In Matthew, it's simply the holy city. The name isn't given. It reflects Luke's pattern of constant, literary, it's a literary pattern of constantly coming back to Jerusalem. 
So we see in Luke a far more literate, far more interested in literary characteristics, gospel writer. We see in Matthew someone who tells the story a fairly fluid way, but he's closer to the Jewish Christian layer. He's more comfortable with the Jewishness of the story. And in Mark, we see someone who is brief and, and, and very close to the oral original layer. So we see, you know, there's an interesting developmental, step-by-step development here. Luke is the most polished. And this will be true throughout our, all of our readings, as we've already seen even in the pre-synoptic materials. In, in, in Luke, in the, when you have the triple tradition like this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Mark is the briefest, the roughest, the least complete. Matthew is the most Jewish. Can be polished, but not as polished as Luke, which is the most literate, the most grammatically correct, the best, most polished literature there. Luke also happens to contain some of the hardest Greek in the New Testament. The hardest Greek is found in Hebrews, but after Hebrews, it's Luke. That's the harder Greek of all of them. Was now he's writing primarily for Asia Minor? Is that what you said? Luke was writing in Asia Minor and/or Greece. So he was writing to the Greek world. He was writing. The best way to identify where Luke was writing is the Aegean Basin. So the Greco part of the Roman Empire. The seat of learning and thought and scholarship in the ancient world, essentially. And Mark was this basically in Rome? Mark was writing in Rome, but. He's less impacted by the character of that environment and more by the source of his writing and the need, the immediacy of the need for his writing than he is interested in addressing Gentile Christian needs in the Roman church. Whereas Matthew writing in, in Antioch or Damascus, among, Damascus amongst the Jewish Christian um, uh, deportees out of Jerusalem just a 10 or so years after the destruction of the second temple he's writing to a bunch of people who are very Jewish and who are trying yet to defend their Christianity amidst a whole bunch of Jews who are saying you've got to denounce Jesus and become a good Jew again so all of those characteristics will impact the way they write and we can see them all right here Mark's brevity reflecting the or- original oral preachedness and simply get the basic sketchy fact down, the outline down, and then Matthew filling it in with the Jewish cultural stuff and giving the story and giving it fairly well here, and then Luke coming along and polishing it up and doing one of his little tricks, changing the sequence of the story to fit his own literary style and to address possibly what a Gentile reader might be most impacted by which is this temptation to take and twist the teachings you have received to fit your own circumstances. Thoughts? The angels don't minister to him in the Lord. No. That gets completely left out of Luke. Isn't that interesting? That whole, the whole ending. That's why most scholars, when they looked at this, have said Matthew hasn't jettisoned Mark. He's just filled Mark in. Whereas they say Luke has jettisoned Mark completely and is going completely with the, 
the story out of the saying source, but is adjusting the sequence of the temptation. Well, maybe the Gentiles wouldn't understand the angels ministering to him as much. That would they be a little. Care. That would also be a little weird to them. Yeah, a little less. <laughs> whereas the <laughs> Jews get it, and of course yeah. it fall, it flows easily from Mark coming yeah. from Peter, who is I don't a Jew. Think the Greeks would get into that whole lot. Questions. Well, next week we continue on in Mark. Remember, we're using Mark as our base guide. And we'll pick it up um, after this bit here, uh, verse 14. Let's go ahead and pick it up now and finish the paragraph. Now, after John was arrested, this is verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. And after, now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. And the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So, after the temptations in the wilderness, we hear that John has been arrested. And so Jesus comes back to Galilee and begins his ministry. And next week we'll pick it up at verse 16 with the calling of the disciples. And we'll read it straight out of Mark. And then we'll take a look at how Matthew will deal with You have been listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2009 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.